we'll pick this up. There we go. Uh, we started Luke's Gospel uh, a while back, and we got to this part of the Gospel. So we're picking up where we um, uh, left off, and we're going to be here for the next few weeks, looking closely um, at some very uh, well-known teaching of Jesus, uh, and just thinking how it's going to transform our lives. I- I'm aware that in our minds, uh, uh, obviously Stuart and Sarah, and this I wrote um, before Everything happened on Friday afternoon, um, but I trust that this is the word the Lord wants to give us, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are sovereign, that you are good, that Sunday by Sunday you have called us to gather and to be your people with you, and we pray that we would be greatly blessed by being here today, that you would meet with us by your Spirit through your word. We would know you more deeply. We would seek to trust you more. That we'd live for you better. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thinking about New Year's, new starts. Wondering, maybe is there a, a, a plan, a different plan for 2024? What's the plan for Redeemer? What's the plan for church more generally? What's the plan for Christians? Because sometimes things, so whatever the plan was, maybe, maybe we do need a new one as we move into a new year. There's so many in our land who are without Christ and without hope. Sometimes it feels like the darkness is on the ascendancy in our time, in our land. The devil is still prowling around. And so what is the plan? Do we need something, something different, something new? Or more personally, when it feels like the earth is giving way, it feels like your life is falling around apart you, around you, apart around you. Do we need a new plan, something different, a different approach to how we're doing things? Well, say so we're picking up Luke's account of Jesus' life, and we are at a bit of a turning point for Jesus. Last time around, we saw Jesus laying out his kind of manifesto, telling the world, this is who I am and this is why I've come. He's proclaiming the gospel. And it's a gospel that meant pushing back the forces of evil that were out there, but also the forces of evil that are at work in our own hearts. And he proclaimed that his gospel centered on forgiveness and the need of repentance, of turning to him, building your life upon him. And some loved it, but others hated it, especially the religious leaders, the kind of ruling elite. Jesus was consistently undermining their power. He was contradicting their teaching. He was showing up their hypocrisy. And so the verse just before our reading, chapter 6, verse 11, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. The the ruling elites, the religious leaders, they have made up their mind. Jesus cannot be allowed to continue. Something must be done, and that something will, in the end, involve torture and crucifixion for Jesus. And Jesus knows this. So what's the plan, Jesus? Is it, is, it, is it a new plan? 
Well, he creates a new community around himself. He establishes a kingdom. See then our first point, kingdom beginnings. Now, I just said that Jesus' response to being rejected is to start something new, this new kingdom, a new community around him. But actually, that's not quite true. Look at verse 12. What is it that he does first? One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. You always see this with Jesus. When the world turns against him, when it feels like the earth is giving away beneath him, he doesn't panic. He doesn't fret. He doesn't look up to God and say, how dare you? But he does look up to God. And he prays. And in terms of a response, it is so obvious, isn't it? So so straightforward and so right. I don't know what he was praying for. Maybe resolve, maybe endurance, maybe courage, maybe wisdom. And to some extent, I imagine he was finding those things simply by being with his father in prayer. Prayer isn't just about us setting out our needs before God. It is that. Absolutely it is that. But the very act itself is about communing with the God who loves us, relating to him, enjoying being in his presence. Sometimes the very things we are asking for in prayer are found in prayer itself. And Jesus prays all night. He is persistent in his prayer. And some of us are brilliant at this. But then others of us, well, we get disheartened if our prayers are not answered within the hour. Or we lose interest. Brothers and sisters, please do not pass over this little part of the sermon as if it's a minor point. This is big. It's big for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, responds to rejection and prepares for the hardness of what is to come by praying. So if we are not praying as a church or or as individuals or with our families, then what are we doing? If we aren't praying for ourselves and for our families and for our kids and for others at Redeemer and for our neighbors and for our brothers and sisters across the world, what are we doing? Wonderfully, last couple of days has given us every motivation to put this into practice, to pray. So first Jesus prays, and then comes his response to rejection. Verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. You see, Jesus starts something new. Out of the pool of disciples who are following Jesus, he chooses 12. And these 12 are going to be apostles, a unique group of men, uniquely qualified, uniquely commissioned by Jesus to establish this new community, this this church, this kingdom. Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders, and so he starts something new. And it is new. But you look a bit closer and you realize that there is something a bit old 
about this new thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus is doing what God has always done. Spot some of the details and they remind you of what's happened in the past, of what happened at the time of the Exodus. God called his people out of Egypt. He then met with them up a mountain. He commissioned them and taught them. Then Moses came down the mountain and sent God's people to live in the world according to God's ways. Jesus goes up a mountain and he meets with the living God. And he calls a people to himself, represented by the 12 apostles. And then he comes down the mountain in verse 17 and teaches the people according to the law of God, sending them out to live according to God's ways. Do you know what? Actually, this pattern keeps recurring in the Bible. The Garden of Eden is on a mountain. Adam and Eve meet with God, and then he sends them out to live according to his law. After the flood, Noah lands on Mount Ararat where he meets with God and the Lord sends him out and his family to live in the world according to his ways. Mount Sinai, just thought about it. The 12 tribes of Israel, the people meet with God around the mountain and then he sends them out to live in the world according to his law. You see, Jesus is doing what God always does to accomplish his purposes on earth. He calls a people to himself. He meets with them up a mountain. He teaches them and then he sends them out. And he is still doing that today. Kind of thinking, well, where's the mountain? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, the author is talking about the church, talking about what happens when we gather. And listen, it's in your handouts or on the screen. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. You have come to Mount Zion the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, church assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Brothers and sisters, each week Jesus continues the pattern that he lays out in Luke chapter 6. He calls us as we assemble together around the heavenly mountain. Mount Zion. And the living God meets with us and he assures us and he strengthens us, he teaches us and he shapes us. And then he sends us out to live according to his ways. What is the plan for 2024? What is the plan when the world turns hostile or it feels like your life is falling apart? What is the plan when a mother lies desperately ill in hospital? It's the same plan it's always been for the last 2,000 years. To come Sunday by Sunday to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. To come to the living God, to commune with him and be comforted by him. To be reminded that he is our rock and our refuge, an ever-present help in times of trouble. It is to be shaped by him and taught by him and then sent out to live for him and stand firm for him. When the world turns against Jesus, what is his response? Yes, he starts something new, but it's something new that is really something old. He calls to himself a people. He meets with them up a mountain, and he sends them out to live for him. And he's still doing the same today. Kingdom beginnings. Secondly, kingdom power. Because there's an obvious question, isn't there? If what Jesus is doing is actually something a bit old... 
Well, then the Lord has tried this before. He's chosen 12 before, 12 tribes of Israel. He's met with his people before. He's commissioned them before. He's taught them and sent them out to live for him before. And it seems to fail. Who is it that's just rejected Jesus? Well, it is the leaders of the people of Israel, the 12 tribes. They're the ones who've just rejected their Messiah. So why should we think it will be any different this time? Well, because Jesus. Look at his power, verse 17. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Jesus at this moment, is surrounded by the forces that have blighted human existence since Genesis chapter 3. Hundreds, let's let's even say thousands perhaps, of people sick and suffering and oppressed by evil. And there is Jesus in the middle of this great crowd. A few months back, I was woken up at 2 a.m. and one of the kids was unwell, and you know, that's normal. But then 30 minutes later, another one came down with the same thing. And then 30 minutes later, another. And by the end, they all were sick. There was one point where there was no toilet free in the house. And I was just sat on the stairs in the midst of all this sickness. And kind of head in my hands. Four four sick children overwhelmed me. More serious. Sometimes on the news you see terrible images, don't you, from war-torn countries. Hospitals full of people wailing in agony and the heroic efforts of the medical staff trying to help. But it is overwhelming. Of course it is. Do you remember pictures from COVID of life inside a hospital, case after case? I had a junior doctor friend who was on a geriatric ward during the first outbreak. And after months of of being surrounded by so much sickness, had to be signed off. It was overwhelming. Of course it is. We are only human. But here is Jesus surrounded by the worst of the human condition, suffering and evil, and he is in the middle of it all. And not only is he not overwhelmed, it is effortless for him. Verse 18, those troubled by impure spirits were cured and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. See, Why is it going to be different this time round? Why is this new community going to be different? Because Jesus is the king and he has unimaginable power. And wonderfully, what he can do out there, as we see with these people healing and pushing back evil, just like he can push and chase back those powers out there, he can do the same in here with our own hearts as well. See, with this kingdom, this new community, it will be different because of Jesus. He has unimaginable power. But this isn't just about Jesus' power, is it? It's about his compassion as well. 
Jesus has got this new thing off the ground. He's chosen his, his apostles. He's begun to found his church. And as he comes down the mountain, ready to then proclaim and teach, and we're going to get onto that in the coming weeks, he wants to kind of, you know, you can imagine, just get this thing off the ground. But then he is swamped by these hundreds, these, these thousands of people. Maybe you know how frustrating it is. You know, go to work, you've got this one thing that you want to get done. Go to the classroom, one you know, school, what one thing you want to accomplish. And then like customers get in the way, children get in the way, patients get in the way, and you can't do the very one thing you set out to do that day. It's frustrating. But, but Jesus, yes, he is swamped, and yet he doesn't say to the crowds and crowds of people crying out for help, no, I've got something more important to do right now. He's patient with them. He helps them. He cures them. He uses his power to restore them, all of them. And if you commit your life to Jesus, if you enter into his kingdom, his church, he is still the same. He hasn't changed. The compassion that you see here, the, the patience and the love for every individual is the same patience and love and compassion that you can expect. It is why we pray. Because we believe that Jesus is powerful and Jesus is compassionate. It's why some of you are up in the night praying for Sarah. What, why others of us will meet later on today to pray for her. It's why we pray with hope. Because Jesus is powerful and Jesus is compassionate. So yes, pray. Pray to Jesus for healing. Crowd him with your burdens, your worries and your anxieties. Pray that he would deliver us from evil. In, in the words of a hymn that we sometimes sing, have we trials and temptation? Is there trouble anywhere? Should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. What makes this community, this calling of people different to every other time? Well, it is Jesus, his power and his compassion. Kingdom beginnings, kingdom power, finally kingdom people. Have a look at verse 20 and try and visualize verse 20. Looking at his disciples, or more literally, lifting up his eyes on his disciples. Jesus said, you see, imagine being there, imagine the scene, hundreds, thousands of people swarming around Jesus, seeking healing, seeking deliverance and help, and each of them going away rejoicing, set free from whatever the burden was that had oppressed them. And while surrounded by these people, Jesus lifts up his eyes, it's a very deliberate thing that he is doing. And he settles them squarely on his disciples, maybe just the 12 apostles. And he says, verse 20, Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry and those who weep. Blessed are those who are excluded and reviled and hated. Now, do you see his point? You can imagine him saying, look, if you are attracted by the healings, the power and the miracles, that isn't enough to be part of my kingdom. Those aren't the kind of people that I am looking for. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the weepers, those excluded and reviled and hated because of me. 
Blessing means to be under the favor of God, to be known and to be loved by God. Or to put it bluntly, the blessed are those who are heaven bound. And then Jesus adds four woes that correspond with the blessings. And the woes mark out the kind of people who won't have a part in his kingdom. Or again, to put it bluntly, they are those who are hell bound. And when Jesus talks about the poor, the hungry and the weeping being blessed, and the rich, the well-fed and the laughing being cursed, he has in mind primarily a spiritual understanding of those things. So poverty, hunger and weeping are often used in the Bible as metaphors for our spiritual state before the Lord. We are spiritually poor now. We have nothing to offer God, nothing to warrant his love, his grace, his forgiveness. We are poor. We are hungry now. We are starving for the mercy of God, starving for forgiveness, starving until our hearts are filled with the knowledge of God. And we weep now. We weep over our sin, grieved at the ways that we have offended God and cause such hurt and pain to others. There's a line in another hymn that we sometimes sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the kind of people Jesus is looking for. Amidst the excitement of the healings and the power and the miracles, Jesus wants to make sure that we understand what is it that should attract you first and foremost to him? It is our spiritual desperation. Like the crowds buzzing around Jesus, desperate to touch him, desperate to be healed. The blessed are the desperate, desperate for mercy and forgiveness and love and joy that comes from knowing the Lord Jesus. It's not that Jesus doesn't care about the physical. Just seen him heal and rescue hundreds from torment and suffering, that the kingdom of God that the poor will inherit, verse 20, the satisfaction, the laughter and the reward that the desperate will enjoy, that all includes physical restoration. But when we come to Jesus, what drives us to him first and foremost is our spiritual plight. Those who are heaven-bound Those who are part of Jesus' kingdom are those who know how spiritually desperate they are. And that element of being spiritually desperate should always be part of the Christian life. Not not that we live constantly fearful and and, and anxious and, and beating ourselves up, but living as those who are acutely aware that nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. It's why we start our services the way we do, with confession of sin. We're not just going through the motions. We are poor. We are hungry. We are weepers, confessing our need for the ongoing grace and mercy of Jesus. It's why we must be careful not to be like those in verses 24 to 26 who have settled for this world, those who are content with their riches now those who feel well-fed and satisfied with what they have, satisfied with who they are. 
There is no weeping with them. No sense of spiritual desperation. The hell-bound think, I don't need God. And because this is primarily spiritual, that means you can be materially wealthy and heaven-bound or materially poor and hell-bound. Of course, being rich can make following Jesus much harder. And if we think about our position across the globe, we are all materially well off. It can make the attitude of weeping and hungering and counting yourself poor much harder to do. But it is not our riches that condemn us in the end. It is our pride, our self-determination, our disbelief in God and the gospel. You can be physically rich and heaven-bound, and you can be physically poor and hell-bound. So brothers and sisters, don't ever lose sight of your desperate need for Jesus. It is why the Lord's Supper is precious. We'll be sharing the Lord's Supper in a moment. When we take it, we express to ourselves and to others our utter dependence on Jesus. Have you ever wondered why Jesus set it up the way he did? Why does he command us to eat bread and and drink wine? Why not just say, look, regularly remember my death? Why make us eat and drink? Well, part of it, because it, it enacts our participation with Jesus. It expresses our union with Jesus, his life and death and resurrection. But partly eating bread expresses our need for Christ. More than the starving need bread, we need Jesus. As we eat and drink, we do so expressing our spiritual desperation. We show that we hunger and thirst for Christ. Jesus is looking for people who are spiritually desperate, the poor, the hungry, the weepers. And only when we are deeply aware of that need for Jesus, then we will hold on to him whatever the cost. Verse 22, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. We will crave Jesus' acceptance of us more than the world's. We will avoid, verse 24, woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. That's going to be hard, isn't it? To to crave the acceptance of Christ more than the world. Much easier to fit in, to keep quiet. Much easier as a pastor to only ever say what people want to hear and never call people out. Much easier as an employee to compromise, to keep your head down, even when you're forced to affirm things or teach things or support things which clearly contradict Jesus. You see, only when we are acutely aware of our desperate need for Jesus, we will, hold, will we hold on to him, whatever the cost. We will hold on because we know that there is nowhere else we can go. In John's Gospel, many started turning against Jesus. In John chapter 6, Jesus said to his apostles, Are you going to go as well? And Peter said, Lord, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. Others may hate us. They may exclude and insult us. They may reject us as evil because of the Son of Man. But where else can we go? 
Our sin means we are poor and hungry and weeping. Where else can we go? We are kingdom people. So what is the plan? When the world turns against us, when our life feels like it is falling apart, when a mother lies desperately ill in hospital, what is the plan? The same as it's always been. The same as the last 2,000 years. To come to Jesus. To gather as his people Sunday by Sunday. To commune with him. Be comforted by him. To be given hope. To be shaped and taught and strengthened by him. And then to be sent out. Because what else can we do? Where else can we go for salvation and life? Only Jesus has the power and the compassion to save us and keep us. Moment of quiet, and I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are deeply saddened this morning. And yet we thank you that with all the ups and the downs of living in this world, you never change. Your goodness to us never changes. Your truth and your promises, they never change. And we thank you that we have this opportunity Sunday by Sunday to be reminded that you are our rock who does not change. We pray that this morning, through what we have sung, through our prayers, through the scriptures that have been read, through the preaching of your word, that you would assure us, that we would commune with you, that our hearts would have been encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.